and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed therapist with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and Clifford Olson is just a real scug. A real scug. I've never heard that word, but I assume it fits really well. It's a sly, sneaky person. That is very true. I mean, I guess maybe he's not super sly because he, like, everyone knew he was a narc. Like, he didn't keep that under wrap, but he was sly to get the information. He was. And sneaky to get that information. Yes. So, yeah. He's mm-hmm. a scug. Real scug. Amongst many other choice words we yeah. can use. Yes. That's, you know, a delicate word for him. <laughs> um, yeah. Welcome to part two of Clif- Clifford Olson. Part one was fun and informative. We'll go over that in a minute. But um, first things first, it's question time, Courtney. It is. And this time, it is my question. Um, and so Trisha, my question is, um, what or like slash who was the worst boss you've ever had? I can't say that. No, you don't have to say their <laughs> names. Okay, okay. Um, um, I, I'll just say I had a boss that, um, was intimidating in a hateful way. Hmm. And, um, very, very, what I think a narcissistic person, I think she's a narcissist. Um, and she had favorites and I was not one of them. Um, and it got to the point where ultimately it wasn't just her, um, but it was primarily her. Um, I just quit cause I couldn't like deal with her. She was awful. Hmm. Um, that sounds awful. It's not my boss now. Obviously I didn't quit. We love Brooke, so we do love Brooke. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, um, yeah, it was a few jobs ago. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. For me, we're going way back to high school. Okay. Um, I was working retail, um, in like a retail store my senior year. So I'm 17, 18, mm-hmm. um, and had this really creepy manager. Oh. So. Um, being a student, I worked a lot of closing shifts cause it was like after school. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the main job of a, a closer in retail is basically to clean the store yeah. and like put all the clothes back where they go and, and everything like that. And I was efficient and good at my job and wanted to do a good job because I'm me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had this one manager, I don't even remember his name. Um, but I remember his creepy face and he had like the creepy mustache, goatee beard and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was just a little too friendly with us younger Mm -hmm. female workers. Um, and I was told at one point by another coworker that he had made a comment that I would make a really great housewife someday because I was great at cleaning and following orders. Mm -hmm. Which was real skeezy to me, yeah. being like a 17-year-old who was just doing my job for money. Well, and that's an inappropriate conversation for him to have with yeah. another co-worker. Yeah. And he's, you know, late 30s, 40s mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and I know he did a bunch of other creepy stuff because eventually um, he was reported enough to oh, okay. HR that he got fired. Sounds like it was a good thing he got fired. Yes, yeah. definitely. Like, I know that is creepy in of itself. And I know he did worse things to, mm-hmm. to other, you know, female employees, but yeah, just, yeah. always had a bad feeling about him. Well, you got to trust those gut instincts. I think, mm-hmm. I think exactly. that's what the cops told us at the crime fest. That is exactly what they, they said, told us. You know, if it feels wrong, just go with it. 
Yeah, so. Exactly. I think that's good advice. You know, we might have a sixth sense. It's maybe not been proven, but, you know, something sets off warning bells. Mm-hmm. I mean, we actually have it. a lot more senses than just six, but we don't talk about those. Okay. Well, let's talk now about what we learned in part one of Clifford Olson. Yes. I probably would also get bad vibes about him, but we'll see. But you know what? A lot of people don't. Right. Yeah. As we'll find out. Mm-hmm. But anyway, in part one of Clifford Olson, we learned that he was born into and raised by two loving, caring, attentive parents, um, but that didn't really seem to matter to him. He always felt left out and was mean and grumpy and picked fights and eventually learned how to box so that he could win fights and then graduated um, as a teen after dropping out of high school to being a petty criminal, Mm -hmm. stealing, burglarizing, assaults, all those things, was in and out of jail, Mm -hmm. both because he escaped several times and was frequently let out on, like, early parole or for Mm -hmm. um, having time commuted for being a jailhouse snitch. Yep. And so we just left off with Cliff. He is, again just released from prison after being stabbed five times by fellow prisoners. Mm-hmm. For snitching. For snitching. Mm-hmm. So here we go. So Cliff uh, did develop a pill habit, and he really liked alcohol. And I guess that was the biggest part of what he missed when he was locked up, his inability to get those things. He felt more superior than junkies because, you know, he popped pills. But as we are aware, prescription medication is no less addictive than street drugs. And this is just an offshoot. I ser- I highly recommend the series Dope Sick. Um, it kind of goes over the whole op- opioid crisis, and it was really good. And it has Michael, Qu- Michael Keaton in it, and I just love him. Um, but as with most people who imbibe in any substance, the goal is not to be a slave to that substance. And Clifford was no exception. He didn't want to quit his habits. He just wanted to be able to control them. I'm sure CADCs hear this all the time. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Certified alcohol drug counselor. Uh, Many of his crimes were motivated by his drug lust. He did get thrown back into Prince Albert Penitentiary a few more times because of petty crimes. He escaped again on one of these stints, and he made it to Richmond, Surrey. He got a place to live, and he was now 40 years old. So... He has been in and out of jail since he was 17. Just want to put that into perspective. Mostly in jail since he was 17. Um, He started to do odd jobs to pay for his rent, and he met his future wife, Joan, at a church where he put um, put up his card, like on the local bulletin board for odd jobs, and she was there. Joan was recently divorced from an abusive drunk, so, you know, Clifford, with his charm, was very appealing to Joan. Clifford was not sexually experienced, since most of the time he spent in jails, you know, most of his time he spent in jails, and he struggled talking to girls in his youth. They were kind of an odd couple, but they bonded and would eventually be married. Clifford actually seemed to really care for Joan. Quote, he could see the value in her, the value in her kindness and her calm, All the things that he did not have in himself, he found in her. To his shock, he was nice to her, not just for the sake of manipulating her into giving him what he wanted, or for the sake of making himself feel good, but because he wanted her to feel good. It was a a revelatory (laughs) for a person who had spent their entire life focused entirely on their own gratification. 
Courtney, are you as surprised as Clifford to see that he may actually care for another person? I am, and I don't know that I fully trust this whole description, particularly if it came from Cliff himself. You know, this this isn't like a, a Willie Picton situation where he experienced only cruelty and disdain from his parents and the community his whole life, right? Cliff had two very loving and supportive parents who were involved in his childhood and tried very hard to shape him into a good person. So it's not like... Joan being kind to him was like his first ever experience with kindness. Um, but I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, I'm just glad that he wasn't cruel to her. Yeah. Well, now this is not to say that Clifford was an ideal partner, but poor Joan was so broken from her ex-husband that Clifford was like a breath of fresh air. Um, so it would seem. Clifford alluded to a checkered past with Joan, but she just didn't seem to really mind one time prior to their marriage, Clifford failed to pay rent, and the landlord had contacted Joan for the money. And that was when Joan realized that Clifford was missing. Well, it turns out he was in jail for sexually assaulting a sex worker. Of course, the charges were dropped because the woman was not a, quote, good witness. You know, how many times do we see that? Now, he nearly killed her when he raped her. He was um, powered by these new pills he was taking, so they must have given him, like, extra strength or rage or something, but... When he got out of jail, he was determined to find the sex worker and kill her. But lucky for her, she had vanished, right? Um, he made up some story to Joan about, you know, why he was in jail and everything, and she forgave him. And the police didn't investigate far enough to realize that Clifford was an escaped convict from a different jurisdiction. So, yeah, remember, he is um, out illegally at this time. Right. He's still yeah. a, a fugitive. Yeah. Um, so they just, you know, this was, you know, back in the day where it didn't like, uh, I guess maybe the computer didn't pop it up or something, or maybe they didn't even have computers. So they didn't know that he was um, a fugitive. So right around this time, Joan found out she was pregnant and they decided to settle down and make it official. But prior to the wedding day, Clifford decided to get out of town um, and go on a road trip on his own for a while. So his royal oats. Um, he wound up at the wound up back at the old British Columbia pen. He was no longer a person or a prisoner, but um, now they, sorry, it was no longer a prison. It now was like a place you could go and tour. And so he wanted to go to his old stomping grounds as sometimes these people do. And so he bought a ticket and he went on the tour. Well, one of the tour guides was a former guard of the old British community, British Columbia penitentiary. And he recognized Cliff um, and he still had friends in law for enforcement and knew that Cliff was wanted. Police were called and Cliff was picked up and put back into jail just for a month because that was whatever was left of his original sentence. So they didn't like add on any time and it, they basically had time served for when he was out. But he never told Joan. So she thought he was still out on his road trip. Um, so on May 15th, 1981, the two were married um, at the church where they first met all those months before. And then they moved to Coquitlam, where he got a job as a building super, and the two got a place to live to raise their child. And it was a boy named Stephen, um, and he was born soon after they moved. Courtney, any thoughts? Well, going back to his, his tour of his old stomping grounds, um, my first thought was kind of like, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. You know, we, we again see how Cliff's impulsivity and need for that immediate gratification continuously just gets him in trouble. 
um, and how his utter lack of care about social norms and the feelings of others allows him to just roll into town and marry Joan like nothing had happened. You know, but as we've seen, you know, this is not necessarily an uncommon thing for serial killers um, and psychopaths. Many of them have been married, had kids, and kept up some semblance of a normal life. Mm-hmm. Well, after the violent rape of the prostitute who, you know, turned him in, Clifford's bloodlust and rage only continued to simmer until it was something that he claims he could no longer control. He tried to take it out on his wife, but while she was pregnant, he didn't want to hurt the baby, so he sought out other opportunities to curb his craving. So this is a trigger warning. Um, the rest of this series is going to involve you know, children, rape, and, and murder. So if you don't want to listen, don't listen to it. Um, he does terrible things. But it's a tough... Um, it's, it was hard for me and probably hard for you to read this book. Mm -hmm. It was hard for me to write it down. And I really, um, I really, um, left out quite a bit of detail because it was, it's not necessary. It's not, it's not needed, but just know that he is a piece of, I don't even, I can't even, I don't even have words to describe what he is, but Clifford's first known victim was 12 year old Christine Weller of Surrey, British Columbia. Christine was not a wealthy child. She lived in a trailer park with her unemployed parents, and one day she went out to window shop at the local mall with her friends. And after all of her friends left, um, she borrowed a bicycle from one of them so she wouldn't have to walk home alone and started to, you know, pedal away. Somewhere on the way home, she met Clifford. It's probable that he tried to sweet-talk her into getting into his car, but when she wouldn't take the ride, Clifford held a knife to her throat and forced her into his car. He kicked the bicycle down the side um, of a ditch. Clifford took Christine to Fraser River Dykes in Richmond and pulled her out of the car by her hair. They could not find forensic, forensic evidence of rape, but it wasn't ruled out. What was determined was that Clifford repeatedly stabbed her. Ten times he plunged the knife into her little body. He stabbed her long after she was dead. And her parents did not really apparently notice that she was not home and didn't report her missing for several days. On Christmas morning, a dog walker found her small body by the side of the Fraser River. The police pulled out all the files they had on sex offenders and other criminals in the area, but Clifford was overlooked because he was still a resource and informant to the police, and he just was not considered a threat or even, you know, much of a criminal to them. Courtney? The, <clears throat> the worst kind of people are the people who harm children. <coughs> Excuse me. It, it's it's just too easy, and as we've seen, you know, Cliff will always take the easy option when he can. And Christine's death was terrible and needless, and I just don't understand what the police were thinking when they continually, continuously let this man out on parole or probation or didn't include him in a list of suspects. You know, he was an all-opportunities kind of criminal, um, and he should have been on every list of potential suspects for pretty much any crime all the time. Well, especially since the last time he was brought in was for that, you know, prostitute alleging rape. Right. And she was like, like had to go to the hospital. She was like very It, it was like an attempted murder, really. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it is bizarre, but... Well, this kill satiated Clifford for a while. His violent impulses seemed to disappear, and he didn't even feel like taking any aggression out on Joan. What a good guy. 
And in spring of 81, Clifford spent no small time grooming his potential victims. So he lived in an apartment complex where there were many young children around. He would give them little gifts and treats and talk to them and joke with them. And he was very charming. Um, Now, Courtney, before I continue, can you tell us a little bit about the grooming process and how Clifford was doing this with his potential victims? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so grooming is the process that a predator uses to try and build trust and rapport with a potential victim, kind of in hopes that this victim will be more willing to comply or more willing to keep silent about about a crime. Um, it's most often used and thought of when referring to, like, pedophiles, um, but really all criminals um, can use it to some degree. And so... Cliff did all the things that make it really easy to get a child to like you. Playing with them, joking, giving gifts and candy. Um, you know, and he treated most of the kids the same way and did most of these things very publicly, which allowed him to be seen and trusted by the adults around him as well. So, you know, the kids would feel comfortable and safe being alone with Cliff or leaving with him in his car for an errand, for example. Um, and so in this situation, not only was he grooming the kids as potential victims, he was grooming their parents as potential character witnesses for him. Hmm. Now, um, Cliff is grooming them with like happy things. Can, um, a perpetrator or whatever groom someone with like threats? Is that still considered grooming or is that something else? Like if you, if, if they do something and then they say, if you tell me, this, this, that will happen. Is that a different kind of grooming or is that just called something else? Um, I think that's just called something else. Grooming is more of the, the lead up to the thing happening. Okay. As opposed to the... To it, the aftermath and then like, mm-hmm. you know, okay. Right. So let's see here. So basically all the kids and most of the parents in the complex like and trust Clifford at this point. One day he offered calling Diagnolt. I'm... Dagnault, D-A-I-G-N-A-U-L-T, I apologize, a job on his, quote, work site. Colleen trusted Clifford, and the thought of making some money was something she just could not turn down. He told her to come um, with him, and he would take her to his job site and show her around. So she happily got into his car. And then he offered her a drink of schnapps to celebrate her new job, and she took a swig. No doubt, you know, feeling grown up and excited. And she, I guess she actually took a couple drinks. So Clifford spiked the drink with something. That made Colleen pass out, and she was awoken by pain. She was on the ground with gravel and dirt um, in a secluded spot. Clifford then raped her while she was still half groggy and unsure of what was happening. Now, I guess she came all the way to and thought that the two of them had been in a car accident, so she was just really confused, and she just knew she woke up and she was on the ground, and she was groggy and she was hurt. And she saw Clifford and thought he might be able to help her since it sounds like, you know, she thought that they had been thrown out of the car together. But what he did instead was beat her with a hammer on her head. The medication he put into her drink um, he thought would keep her out until he was done killing her. But she kept waking up and apparently he felt excitement at her fear and killed her while she was aware of what was happening. The book goes into pretty explicit detail on his account of how she died, but I just don't think it's necessary. Um, As you can tell, he's a horrible person who is murdering and raping children. Courtney, the author of the book really goes into detail, and I have to assume that this detail must have come from Clifford. Let's just assume that it does. What can you tell us about Clifford now psychologically? You know, well, he is evolving, as all serial killers do. You know, for most of his life, the petty crimes, assaults, and whatnot were enough to satisfy his dark urges. 
And then he discovered a deeper level of satisfaction, we'll call it, um, when he almost killed that sex worker, which triggered then a bigger need for violence. And then, you know, once he killed his first victim, Christine, um, that we know of anyway, um, that true addiction to the act of murder started um, and he was starting to need more and more of it. Um, he hid her body this time. He didn't want it discovered anytime soon. So he learned from that first girl. He was questioned by the police since he lived near the girl and, you know, he was his charming self with them and they just cleared him. He then picked up 16-year-old Darren Johnsrud in Westminster and he pulled the same con, offered a job, a celebratory drink. This boy was new to town. He had no friends, so he was happy at the opportunity for a job and Clifford charmed him. Clifford took Darren to DeRoche to a pre-planned kill site. He raped this young man but really tried to cause pain to wake Darren up so he could watch the boy live out the torture. Darren woke earlier during the assault, um, perhaps because he was bigger than the girls, so he had to endure what was happening to him for longer. So after the rape, Clifford beat the boy's body from head to toe, breaking bones, before finally killing the boy by hammering his skull. So by Clifford killing Daryl, the cops were thrown off a little bit because most serial murders have a victim type. So the killing of the boy did not fit in with the other two victims. A connection was not made at this time. Also, Clifford used knives on some of them <clears throat> and hammers on others. Darren's body was found, but Colleen's had not been found yet. So the cops had yet even less to convince them that there was a single murderer in their midst. Four days after Clifford and Joan were officially married, um, he found his next victim. I apologize if this is kind of going in out of order with the Clifford and Joan being married thing, but that's just kind of how it, how it is. So sorry about that. He found Sandra Wolfsteiner in the town of Langley. She had just left her boyfriend's house right after a fight. Clifford saw her while she was waiting for a bus and offered her a ride. He offered her a swig from his flask, and she took it since she was having a bad day. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Oh, in fact, I, in fact, in fact, she took several drinks of the flask. Clifford took her out to Chilliwack Lake, and she was totally out of it, thankfully, um, for the rape he committed on her unconscious body. Clifford had been fantasizing about new techniques he wanted to try out, and he brought out a five-inch spike with him this time. He hammered that spike into her skull, into her brain, several times because he wanted to see if he could make her body spasm. Of course, this eventually killed her, but he still exper experimented on her corpse. He then buried her in a shallow grave. He did far more to this gal, but I'm not going to go into it. Courtney, apparently at this time, Clifford's imagination was going over time. He not only had to, you know, he not only had the spike now, but he had syringes. He wanted to try to cause embolisms, ropes for garrots, um, you know, who knows what else. Do you have any insights or anything you'd like to discuss? To kind of fall back on some good old Freudian terms, Clifford has completely given into his id. You know, the part of the mind that is all about primal impulses and immediate gratification the part that's immature and just wants to play and I hate to describe it this way but I really do think that with Colleen's murder um, and then Sandra and those that followed Cliff was having fun and playing with them essentially basically giving into that urge of like what happens if I do this um and this part of him is completely vile and devoid of any sense of empathy or humanity. After this murder, Clifford tried to groom a four-year-old girl in his complex. This girl was smart as fuck, however, and did not fall for this. He would try to get her away from the other children and would give her little gifts and treats. 
One day she went home and told her parents what he was trying to do, and they called the police. Unfortunately, because of all the narking Clifford had done, the cops, you know, for the cops, they just let him loose and didn't investigate anything further. Clifford convinced the cops and the little girl's parents that it was just a misunderstanding. The little girl was even punished for, quote, spreading lies by her parents. Luckily, Clifford said he would keep his distance from the little girl, and it looks like he did. Courtney, in your experience dealing with young children, do they commonly lie about this type of thing? I would think it would be a very rare thing for a four-year-old to come to their parents with a lie like this. Children do not lie about abuse, at least not in any sort of common, like commonality, especially not young children. And, you know, we have to remember, especially with young children, that they don't have the knowledge or the contextual understanding of the world to come up with something like abuse, especially something like sexual abuse, because they would not know what sexual abuse is unless it had happened to them. That's what I was thinking. A month later, he encountered Ada Court, a 13-year-old girl who just got off work babysitting and was walking home. Sheesh, you'd think the parents of the kid she was babysitting would have taken her home. I was sort of thinking about that, the, the girl with the boyfriend, but anyways. He rolled alongside her and chit-chatted with her, making her feel at ease. She was still leery about getting into a car with a stranger, so Clifford offered her a job instead. He said he would interview her while giving her a ride home, and so that sounded good to her. She got into the car. She then took a drink of the booze he offered her, and she felt sick immediately. Apparently, the dose he put in her nearly killed her as she was really small. He strangled, beat, stabbed, and struck her head with a hammer until brain matter, brain matter came out of her skull. He dug a hole and dropped her naked corpse into it at Weaver Lake. Apparently, he did not feel the same level of satisfaction with this kill as he had with the previous ones. It seems like murdering for him was just like other drugs. Eventually, you need more to get the same high. Quote, there were still parts that he loved, the victim's helplessness, their suffering, but so much of the rest of the process was losing its shine. It was becoming too much like work for him, and nobody hated work quite like, quite, ugh, quite like Clifford. Courtney, if this is true, which we do tend to see, are we to assume that for an addict of murder, dopamine and serotonin levels are increased when they kill, causing them to seek high, just like with other addictions? Yes, that's true. Um, you know, there are a few different neurochemicals that are connected with our brain's reward system, um, but dopamine is the main one. Um, and it's released when we experience something pleasurable or complete a task that we feel good about, right? So that satisfying feeling when you, like, close your laptop at the end of the day and, like, walk out of the office, um, that's thanks to dopamine. That's a dopamine hit. Um, when people are addicted to drugs... They often, you know, those drugs are received by dopamine receptors in the brain, giving sort of a false feeling of pleasure. Um, so the brain thinks that it's getting dopamine when really it's getting like heroin or something instead. Um, and so because of that, the brain stops producing so much dopamine itself. So then in order to feel that feeling again, they need the drug to keep getting that feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for Cliff, he really enjoys hurting and killing children. Um, and so the more hurting involved, the more dopamine is released into his brain. <sighs> well, soon after this, Clifford had a mess up occur. A 16-year-old would-be murder victim got away. He did sexually assault her, but she was able to fight him off and run, out, run off. She went to the police and Clifford was arrested during the night while he had been sleeping. So now he had the four-year-old accusing him of overstepping and a 16-year-old accusing him of molesting her. 
He played it off that he didn't know how old the 16-year-old was and that they had both been drinking, etc. They still gave him a court date, but they let him go with the warning. After this incident, he became furious and took it out on many, many victims. It's like when he gets caught, he gets mad at everyone else. Like, it just makes him angrier. The baby. Well, yeah, because it's their fault for now getting him in trouble. Yeah. Well, days later, Clifford targeted nine-year-old Simon Partigan. Clifford just used his charm on Simon, and Simon willingly got into his car. Of course, they shared a beer, but this one Clifford did not spike, most likely because of how tiny the boy was. He didn't feel he needed the extra protection that Rufus offered him. They did share another beer, however, and this caused the boy to be a little drunk. Probably a lot of drunk. <laughs> he drove them out to the middle of nowhere, even though Simon, um, and then threw Simon out of the truck. He, th- um, sorry. he then placed his hand on his chest and pushed down really hard, so pretty much knocking the wind out of him. Uh, the book described that he wanted to feel what it felt like to make the bones bend. Clifford then raped the little boy and strangled him while he was trying to scream. He was then buried next to the river. So the other missing children were thought to perhaps have been runaways based on their age, but with a nine-year-old gone missing, they now were thinking that perhaps they did have a serial killer in their midst after all. This prompted the cases to be changed from missing person cases to homicide cases, and new detectives took over. A whole new investigation was launched, um, and this time, the police were actually considering Clifford Olson as a suspect. Woohoo! So, yeah, about time. Seven days later, he killed J- Judy Cosma, a 14-year-old girl, using the same il- uh, lines as before, offering her a job, a celebratory lace drink, and then a long drive, which ended up at Weaver Lake. She tried to run away, but she tripped over the road, just like in a horror movie. This time, Clifford decided he wanted to audio record what he was going to do. So he beat her and stabbed her and recorded her screams. Screams he didn't usually allow, but wanted to record them, so he let her do so. His recording made him happy for the first couple times he listened to it, but then it just wasn't doing it for him. There was a witness that told the police that they were fairly certain they saw Judy in Clifford's truck. He couldn't be 100% sure, but it was another lead in Clifford's direction. Now, this doucher, Courtney, like, Clifford figured out what Judy's phone ho- home phone number was from the information in the newspaper, and he called the parents and told them all about what he had done to their daughter. He even played the recording for them over the phone. Now, luckily for the parents, he had actually rang the owner of the house, the landlord, and not the parents, but still, the intent was there. What do you think? He is just so great at finding new ways to cause pain and suffering to others. Yeah, it's like that's what he was put on the planet to do. Right. His next next victim that we know of was 15-year-old Raymond King Jr. of New Westminster. Ray was looking for a job, and Clifford just happened to be hiring. Raymond was a bigger kid than the others and wasn't as affected by the drugs and the celebratory drink as the other victims. He, too, tried to get away when they got to the lake. He actually jumped out of the moving vehicle, in fact. Clifford was able to grab him and throw him down a hill. He was still alive when he rolled to a stop, but he was pretty badly injured. His legs were both broken. He tried to cover himself with debris to hide from Clifford, but it just didn't work. Clifford bludgeoned him with a rock. He didn't bother to bury this corpse. He was too pissed, and he was covered in blood and body matter. He just left him there in the forest, bloodied and broken. He was now even more angry than before. The next day, he picked up Sigrun Arnd, a foreign exchange student from Germany. She had just arrived that day in Coquitlam. She was 18 and was by herself for the first time. She had marveled at how kind the Canadians were, Um, That was probably part of the reason she accepted the ride from Clifford. He did the same thing, drugged her, raped her while she was out of it, and then beating her in the skull until death. He didn't bury her, just tossed her remains into a ditch. 
Courtney, I'm going to stop here for the day. We will just say that the police are starting to look into Clifford more and more at this point. Any comments? Listen to children. Believe children. Trust your gut instincts. Don't get into cars with strangers. Mm -hmm. Men in trucks don't have jobs for young teenagers. And for the police, maybe don't believe the man who has spent more time in prison than outside of it. Right, and, you know, is so honorable that he narcs for a living. Right. <laughs> yes. It's both inside and outside of prison. Okay, well, social media time. Um, we really appreciate it. If you like, listen, follow, subscribe, all of that um, helps motivate us to keep on going. Um, our email, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, thoughts, any of that, is at addicted to murder gmail. No, addicted to murder podcast at gmail.com. Instagram at addicted to M podcast, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube at addicted to murder podcast. Yep. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. Be safe. Stay away from strangers, all that good stuff. And we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. <laughs>